Midas Pharo looking for two. Doncaster straight. Can he do it again? Light up the world is getting up near the fence. But Pharo, Pharo dashed to the lead from Abbey Glen and light up the world, followed by Aragen and Brave Warrior. But Gavin Eads goes for home on Pharo. Look at Auntie Mary. Auntie Mary out of the back. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Australian trainers are giving Pride's Racing Cube the thumbs up. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube is a set recipe formulation in which the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Mornington trainer Jason Warren introduced his horses to Racing Cube early this year and is delighted with the results. We've had a great deal of success since making that change. So really pleased with Pride's and not only the Racing Cubes, they've got a number of other feeds that work well for us. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at a very economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube. Another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers are giving it the tick of approval all around the nation. Quick thinking and natural survival instinct almost certainly saved Belinda Hodder from more serious injury when she was dislodged from a mare called Darcy Diva in track work at Port Macquarie on April the 19th. The accident happened in the most harmless way. Essentially a very quiet mare, Darcy Diva spooked when a duck took flight close by and veered so sharply that Belinda was left airborne. She landed on her back and knew instantly that something was wrong. She made a conscious decision not to move until help arrived and that, according to doctors, probably saved her from further complications. She was quickly airlifted to Royal North Shore Hospital where eminent orthopaedic surgeon Dr Andrew Cree diagnosed a fracture to the L1 vertebra. Surgery revealed associated nerve damage and that's the component that could take up to 12 months to repair. Six weeks on, Belinda is on her feet, she's walking unaided and making very good progress. The sad irony of her situation is the fact that she'd been race riding again for just under three weeks following time off required to have her baby daughter Gracie Rose, who's just turning two. During her upcoming rehabilitation, Belinda can reflect on an injury-impaired but very successful 15 years as a professional jockey. She is, in fact, within a hair's breadth of 400 winners as we record this podcast. Belinda and her fiancé, Drew Smith, live in Port Macquarie where Drew operates a business specialising in jockey and trainer management. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of Australia's most respected lady jockeys, Belinda Hodder. Belinda, thanks for joining us. 
No, thank you. You're very kind. I was a little reluctant to ask you to do a podcast because it's <laughs> only six weeks since the accident and I certainly didn't want to put you under any stress. So I was tickle pink when you agreed to talk to me. No, thank you. Honestly, I can't believe how quickly I've improved, to be honest, when the first week out of surgery and how bad I felt and I was worried it was going to be a very long, slow process. But I'm getting better and better every day and Gracie keeps me busy, but um, no, yeah. very lucky. I understand you've got a fair way to go yet, but you're you're ahead of schedule really, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I was probably the fittest I'd ever been leading into the injury, so I think that helps, you know, being young and fit and mm. able to get around. I can kind of rely on the rest of my body that isn't my back to help me and my yeah. progress moving forward. Yep. You had a stroke of luck in having the services of Dr Andrew Cree, who is a wizard in spinal surgery. Corey Brown was one of several jockeys, Dr Cree, has guided through some pretty tough times. Yeah, no, I was um, very confident that I was in good hands. I'm very good friends with Brooke Stoller, who he operated on, and she's come through her injury, which is quite similar to mine in, mm. in flying colours. So as soon as I had him on board, I was confident that he'd make the right decision, and I was happy just to leave the ball in his court in terms of surgery mm. and what I would need moving forward. Now, what was the surgery that Dr Cree performed? Yeah, so essentially the it was an L1 burst fracture and there was a a piece of bone that was very close to my spinal cord that was has caused a bit of nerve damage. So I could have gone the route of no surgery, but he was worried that he wouldn't be able to get the vertebrae, vertebrae in the right place. So yeah. we went the surgery path where he took a bone graft from my hip to stabilise the fracture and fused the four discs around the L1 together um, with rods and screws. So it's all nice and secure now. Oh, great. Brooke Stower actually told me that Dr Cree is fanatical about spinal injuries being given ample time to repair properly. He won't have patients rushing back. Yeah, and I think obviously it's – I know how lucky I was. If I moved, I wouldn't be walking, so it could have been a lot worse. It's just not an area that you want to play with. So no. time heals most wounds, and I like to think that hopefully in time the nerve damage will sort itself out and I'll be back as good as gold. Mm. How many times have we heard people say an accident happened with the quietest horse in the stable? Darcy Beaver, they tell me, is exactly that. Oh, if you told me that I'd be having this injury off this horse a month before, I wouldn't have believed you. She's she's a nice little filly, just one of those things. I was cantering along, minding my own business, and some ducks flew up, and I'd have seen a flick of the ear, and next minute she's done a U-turn, and I've just landed wrong, and I kind of knew immediately um, with the pins and needles in my legs, and yeah. I felt it. I heard a crunch, and I just knew not to move. Yeah. You actually rang your fiancé, Drew, while you were laying on the track. Did somebody give you a mobile phone? Yeah, so um, the full person to um, Paul Shaler's stable at Hamish came over and checked on me and the track curator was already there, but I borrowed his phone just to let Drew know that I'd be late that morning. I was hoping I was just being a sook and there wasn't going to be too much in it, but um, yeah. kind of knowing what... Brooke had described I was there on course when she heard her back at Grafton that day and I was there with her and she 
described exactly what I was feeling with the pins and needles in the le- legs and the same strange sensation and she was within a hair's breadth of having serious complications so I just thought I'd be better off being safe than sorry and chose yeah. to yeah not move no it was a smart it was a master stroke yeah now you look back yeah it's funny as a girl you always think you're being a sook so you kind <laughs> of just brush off a lot of injuries and think oh I'm probably just being a sook about this and you generally get up but this yeah. this definitely seemed like something more yeah. worse than usual, that's for sure. Mm, you know, after 15 years riding in races against those hard-headed old bush jockeys on the <laughs> northern rivers, I don't think you'd be a sook. No, no, but, um, yeah, I think it's just instinct. Yeah. Instinct, you always just think, get off and get on with it. The irony is you'd been race riding again for only two and a half weeks. I think you'd had about eight rides and you were rapidly getting the eye in again, and you were loving it. Yeah, absolutely loving it. It's funny. Uh, having Gracie, I wondered whether it was the right move to to come back, and I explored a couple of other avenues, but that love for racing never goes away. I've missed it terribly since I gave it away and kind of always wanted to come back but wondered whether it was a selfish move because I'm, I know I have other options and, I know there's probably smarter options with a young family, but I was strictly doing it just because I love it. Yeah, of course. Pretty yeah. good reason. Pretty good yeah, reason. Yeah, exactly, yeah. As we mentioned earlier, you'd taken time off to have your first, the irresistible Gracie Rose, but you'd been riding work for quite a long time, hadn't you, in preparation for a comeback, riding exclusively for the Shayla stable. So you were pretty fit. Yeah, no, I was very fit. I had a um, I had a conversation with this Shane Cullen one day, and he really drilled it into me that you know babies need their mum when they're young. So I was in no rush to come back, and I knew after a long layoff, I'd need to be better than what I was. I didn't want to come back and be half baked. I wanted to be fitter and stronger, and admittedly more more mature coming back. So yeah. I wanted to have a good crack at it if I was going to. So I was in no rush. I wanted to be fit. And when I did come back, honestly, I felt like I'd never been out of the saddle. Yes, and you looked at too. I, I watched you ride two or three of those horses at Lismore on the Saturday before the accident, and I can recall thinking you wouldn't know that girl's been away. Yeah, thank you. You actually rode in races up to the third month of your pregnancy when the rules stipulate you've got to stop. Surprising they let you go that long. Yeah, so the rules say you can ride um, throughout your first trimester. So I rode it right to the death. I felt pretty good. I rode a lot of winners. I actually, prior to getting pregnant, I'd never ridden four winners on a day before and I managed to ride four winners one day at Barrable. So that was a bit of a feather in my cap and safe to say Gracie's outridden her, outridden her four kilo claim. <laughs> now, Belinda, this is a great story. I've got to share the story of your arrival in the world. Now, your mum, Julie, was living in Perth in the late 1980s. She was carrying you when she decided to visit members of her family at Port Macquarie. Now, during that visit, you decided to announce your arrival prematurely. I sure did. Yeah, I was six weeks early and um, 
I've always been impatient, so it makes sense. And yeah, it's funny now I live here. Oh, exactly. And you can't help but wonder if that had something to do with your decision to settle back at Port Macquarie. Deep down, the place is pretty special. No, it's a beautiful place to live. I've kind of gone to a number of different places as an apprentice and, you know, I honestly can't say there's a better place to live. It's, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot and it's just not too busy. So it sits me mm. down to the ground. It's a lot busier than it used to be. I can remember Port Macquarie 40 or 50 years ago, Belinda. It was a sleepy little fishing village uh, and a retirement place. Uh, for elderly elderly city people looking for the quiet life. It's a bit different to that now. Yeah, definitely. I remember my pop saying that he bring my nana here for her for their honeymoon and it was just a couple of couple of shacks on, on a beach town. It wasn't yeah. much here at all, but certainly changed. Yeah. Well, back to Perth you went after a, a couple of months and a few years later you became involved in Pony Club and many other horse activities. But in 2002, your mum decided to move permanently to Kempsey when her dad took ill. Is that how it happened? Yeah, I think we'd, we'd been in Perth for a long time and mum done a great job. She had me at 16, um, my brother and sister come along after that and she's essentially done it pretty much all herself. So she, mm. she had no family support over there and Pop was only getting older and he was quite unwell so she moved back here to be with him and also to have that family support and um yeah we've been here at, we were at Kempsey for a number of years before I moved on. Well when you got back to the mid-north coast you continued with all of your equine activities reaching a very high level until your mid-teens when you suddenly came up with the idea of becoming an apprentice jockey. Now Julie had actually trained gallopers for a short time in WA. So she decided to gain her New South Wales licence and sign her daughter up as an apprentice. Yeah, she sure did. Um, yeah, I don't think she was very happy about it. She insisted that I stayed at school and done my HSC prior to doing my trials. So I think I started a little bit later. I was more 19, mm. 20 before I started. But, um, yeah, no. She was very, very instrumental earlier in my career. I remember she used to um, take me to Port Macquarie on a Saturday to write a bit of work for the likes of Bob Murrell and Wayne Wilkes just to try and learn a bit more and be around other other jockeys that could teach me a little bit because mm. obviously at Kempsey it was quite a small, small town, small track, no one to really point me in the right direction and essentially I was – yeah. Pretty much just trying to learn the ropes off my own bat, which is a bit wild. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I think um, I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. She'd done so much for me growing up and so much to get me started. Eddie Yabsley was the trainer of your very first race ride, a horse called Aracoon on your home track, Little Warwick Park track at Kempsey. And it was an unspectacular debut. Yeah, certainly was. I remember I think the straight at Kempsey's lucky to be 300 metres and I remember feeling like that was the longest straight of my life. But, um, yeah, no, I think I finished well back in the field but it definitely planted the seed and um, I think I had four rides that day. I was narrowly beaten on one of mum's horses. But, um, yeah, I think it took me about 16 rides to ride my first winner. It, it definitely um, didn't happen straight away. No, and the trainer 
was our good mate Ross Stitt from Taree. He supplied your first winner at a Taree meeting, and this is very significant. It was Melbourne Cup Day 2008. The day viewed won the Melbourne Cup for Blake Shin and Bart Cummings. Your win was in a cup race. It was called the NBN Television Spring Cup. The horse was called Mr Mumbles, and to this day you tell me you don't know how he won. Yeah, I think I lost my compass on the home end. But yeah, no, I was happy. Um, I think I, I actually remember pestering Ross Stitt for rides and I would have rung him four or five times and he finally gave in on that day and was able to supply me with my first winner and I'm very grateful. Um, the owner of the horse was Errol French who's um, passed away a number of years ago and I was actually gifted the cup from that that race meeting and mm. the, the winning photo when he passed away. So very sentimental and um, nice to ride a winner for a good man. Yeah, very special memorabilia and you've got it on display there at home, no doubt. Yeah, certainly. You tell me you absolutely slaughtered one of your mum's horses one day at a local meeting and she was none too pleased and neither was the chief steward on the day who suggested you should go and get more practice so mum arranged for you to be transferred to Gordon York at Coffs Harbour, an expatriate Kiwi. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I, I think I was just at that point where I needed to take the next step. I needed to come out from under mum's wing and Gordon was the right man for that. He was hard. He, he taught me how to, you know, like we'd, we'd start – the morning would start at 3 o'clock there in the morning and we'd finish up at 10. You'd go back in the afternoon at 1. You'd work till 6. It was big days, a lot of work, but I'd ride 20 work, twenty horses work a morning um, and it was really what I needed to kind of give me that grit and toughen me up a bit. And it was, I don't think that I would have taken the next step if I wasn't kind of pushed out of the nest. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Gordon gave you opportunities to go to other places in the region, you know, when an odd ride would come along, and that worked really well for a while. But as the winners flowed, you found yourself travelling to faraway meetings, which resulted in your neglecting duties at the York stable. Understandably, Gordon had to terminate the arrangement. Yeah, I think it was just more um, kind of got to the point where I needed to go to – it's like racing's very big on momentum. So if you can get a few winners, things keep on flowing. And if I was going to keep on doing what I needed to do to get the stable work done, that was not going to stop me from getting outside rides. So the opportunity came up with Ross Stitt and obviously I'd had that little bit of a connection by riding winners for him. So – Ross was great to me early days. He gave me a lot of opportunity and I wrote a lot of winners for him. Yeah, you were there for about 12 months? Yeah, I was. He was very, very good to me, um, yeah, and still is, to be honest. I think I um, I remember writing winners for him just prior to having Gracie. Yeah, you wrote about 30 winners for Ross in that 12-month period and he was happy for you to travel away to race meetings. But when you were there, when you were at work and in the stables, you gave him top effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it, it was kind of good at Ross's. I was able to write a bit of work for Bob Hare and Bindi Cheers and just being able to spread yourself around a bit really helps with being able to gain them opportunities and build that rapport with other trainers. Mm. 
Well, your apprenticeship transfers were not quite finished yet. You spent the last year of your time with Mark Quinn at Port Macquarie, although he loaned you out, didn't he, at one stage, to John Morrissey on the Gold Coast. You rode a few winners, but you were not happy, unsettled. Yeah, it's funny. I think um, even though I... I I thought thought I owed it to myself at that point to have a go at a provincial area um, and use up a piece of that claim. But in saying that, and I, I've always kind of felt as though I'm happy to be a country jockey, and I think if you're happy, you ride you ride well. And I, I enjoyed my time at John Morrissey's; he was very good to me. But um, uh, I'd done my kind of three month stint there, and I was happy to come home. Mm. This recent injury is the worst of many that you've sustained over the years. You were telling me there was a time a few years ago when you calculated you spent 20 months out in a four-year period. You're made of stern stuff, Belinda. Yeah, it's funny that you seem to go for a, a good stint of time with no injuries and you feel somewhat invincible and then when they come, they seem to all come at once, so... Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's not if, it's when with racing and you just take the good with the bad. But I think realistically I've been very lucky and um, outside of this it's more just been limbs and yeah. limbs and stuff and nothing nothing too bad. Yeah, limbs and stuff. I'll tell you what yeah. it was. <laughs> fractures to a leg, fractures to a wrist, fractures to ribs and both eye sockets. And tell me if this one is true. You were riding for a while there with a fractured tibia and in compensating for that, you damaged the corresponding ankle. Yeah, it's funny that I, I, at the time I was just getting a good roll on. I think I just started um, riding riding for Colt and he was giving me a real good crack and I had an incident at Coffs Harbour one day where I had a horse kick me in the shin behind the barriers and um, I got it. I got it, the ankle x-ray, but they didn't x-ray the tibia. Um, so I thought that there was nothing wrong with it. The x-rays were clear and mm. I rode for another 10 days and um, I ended up, the leg was uninflamed. I ended up doing the ligaments in the ankle. Yeah. Um, and when I went back, it turned out that I had a, a fractured tibia all along. But they're just the things you do. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you won't mind my bringing this one up. You told me in a previous interview some time ago that you worry about your nose, which <laughs> doctors once rebroke and reset, but you still think it's a touch crooked. Oh, I know it is. <laughs> um, no, I had a race fall at um, Kempsey where I I fell at around the 600 metre mark and the horse um, came down and I went face first and fractured my eye socket and my nose and um, oh. it was very bent to start off with and no, no fault of the surgeon. He went in and tried to straighten it up the best he could, but um, he said it was just a crumpled mess when he got in there. So I think that's just, you know, one of those things. Yeah, you won't worry about it for the time being though, will you? No, no, there's worse <laughs> things that can happen. <laughs> now, before we leave Julie, we should confirm she's now living in Grafton and horses are no longer part of her life. She has, in fact created her own cleaning business and you tell me she's doing very, very well. No, no, I'm, I'm very proud of her. Um, growing up, we always kind of had horses and she done it the hard way. She was 
simply trained for the love of it and um, always sacrificed a lot to do it. And the horses have fallen to the background of late and she's built this, this cleaning business from scratch. She started cleaning people's houses and has turned into a, a full team. She cleans for a lot of the big businesses. She's bought herself a house, a car. I've yeah. never been so proud. So, you know, it's good to see her um, go on to bigger and better things. Yeah. Well, you also have a brother, Paul, and a sister, Megan, and they both live in Grafton, which would give Julie immense pleasure. Yeah, um, they're, they're close by. Megan um, and her, her husband own a a bottle shop um, and a like a service station and run it out of a, a town out on the outskirts of Grafton and mm. and Paul runs a, um, another arm off mum's business where he does the carpet cleaning. So they're all doing well and mum loves mm. having them close. You also have a half-brother called James who lives in Queensland with your dad, Andrew. So that's a lot. We've covered the clan. Yeah, absolutely. I've um, got them everywhere, but um, they're all doing well and, yeah, they're – it's nice to see them, um, you know, living their own lives and, and doing good things. You've had a couple of great seasons. 2019-2020, you rode 61 winners in the state. 2017-18, you won 54. By gee, every country-based jockey would be delighted to top 50 most seasons. Yeah, it's funny. It, it kind of took me a little while to find my groove. I think as a young rider, I definitely wasn't there yet, but I really felt like probably the last five years of my career um, prior to having Gracie, I was riding with confidence, getting better opportunities and, you know, everything looked to be on the upward tra- trajectory. And mm. I don't regret having Gracie because she's just the best thing in the world, but um, it makes you wonder what could have been if I kept on poking along. Mm. Well, just pause for a moment, Belinda, to clear a commitment on the podcast. I'll get you to stand by and we'll be back with you after this. Sydney stayers races in midwinter don't attract top-class fields, but they're welcomed by the trainers of horses who are not good enough for the autumn and the spring. One such race is the listed WJ McKell Cup to be run at Rose Hill on June the 17th with a purse of $160,000. The McKell Cup was first run in 1962 as a tribute to Sir William McKell, Premier of New South Wales from 1941 to 1947 and leader of the State Labor Party. He intended to leave the public arena as far back as 1946, but he was offered the position of Governor-General of Australia by Prime Minister Ben Chifley. He accepted the coveted role and remained in office for six years. In 1943, he played a part in having the Sydney Turf Club Act passed by Parliament and the new race club was given the go-ahead to conduct 62 race meetings a year. 19 years later, he was honoured by the Sydney Turf Club with the introduction of the WJ McKell Cup. And for many years, Sir William himself made a point of getting to Rose Hill to present the trophy. Sir William McKell died in 1985 at the remarkable age of 93. He's remembered as a great racing man and the founding father of the Sydney Turf Club. He'll be remembered at Rose Hill on June the 17th. My special guest is Belinda Hodder. 
currently nursing injury, but um, hopefully she'll be back somewhere down the track. Now, you've won some really nice bush races. I'll just run through a few of these and you can give me your recollections. What about that Armadale Cup on concessions for Scott Singleton? Yeah, no, I hadn't really ridden for um, Scott Singleton before and I was pretty proud of my ride that day. She drew an ordinary gate and I was able to suck the fence and she um, poked her head through at the top of the straight and, yeah, nice to ride a nice horse for a good trainer. Mm. You won a Maury Town Plate on Prince Mayted and a Bowerville Cup on Danza Bar Dancer. Now, there's a little track, curious little track to say the least, Bowerville, but you seem to have the key to it. Yeah, no, I always um, – I love going to Barrable. I could always count on, a, you know, two or three winners every time I went there. I definitely enjoyed it. It's one of those tracks where, you know, if you can ride a horse on speed and suck the fence, you can kind of mm. have them finish in a better position than, you, than they probably deserve to. Mm. A Willem Bar Cup on Anne Bonny. I think she was a good mare for you, wasn't she? Anne Bonny, trained by Owen Glue. Yeah, she certainly was. She's been very good for me. Um, over my time, I won a number of races on her and same with Owen Glue. I think my my strike rate for him and his stable is impeccable, so I um, mm. definitely appreciate the support. Mm. You won the Ken Howard Memorial Cup at Coffs Harbour on Galway. Now, that race was named after my tutor, my inspiration when I was a young race caller and my tutor, I spent nine years working alongside Ken Howard. He had a lot to do with the Coffs Harbour Club uh, during his life and it's so fitting and so appropriate that that race is named in his honour and you won it on one occasion. Yeah, an honour to win. A, a bigger race for for another good trainer in Brett Dodson. So, um, you know, I appreciate all, all them little feature races. They're probably not much to other people, but to me they're a feather in my cap and, to be honest, I just love riding winners anyway. You won the John Carlton Cup at Grafton on Malia Magic. John Carlton, who passed away some years ago now, wonderful race caller and a wonderful bloke. I think of him often. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, and for the late um, Bob Milligan as well, it, that horse was – that winner was four. So um, mm. I often think of Bob and I think Glenn done a great job taking over later days when um, Bob wasn't so well. But, yeah, no, it's – often I like to remember those things. A casino cup on a horse called At Wit's End. Yeah, another one for Owen Glue. Um, mm. Yeah, he's been very good, good to me over the years. There's one particular trainer you credit with being the single greatest influence – in your riding career. His name is Cult Prosser. He trains his horses at Warhope, and you tell me he's more than just a hard worker. He is obsessed about getting it right. Yeah, no, he's um, very, very good to me. I was only thinking about this the other night, so funny story. I remember when I first went out to Colts, I kind of heard like, oh, he's got a few wild ones out there. And I thought, oh, it'll be, it'll be fine. I'll, like, surely they can't be that bad. So I've gone out to Warhope and he leads this chestnut looking individual off the walker. And I go to get on it and I just see the white of this horse's eyes and it, <laughs> he pulls back and it, it takes off, it slips the bridle. 
And oh, <laughs> I was dear. like, oh, my God, what have I got myself in for? Mm. <laughs> and Colt looks at me and he's like, I promise it's quiet. Anyway, it turns out he was quiet. Colt caught him and mm. it was all fine in the end. But um, it's funny how things work out. Um, yeah, just I was really worried about um, – you know, how that circumstance is going to play out. But he's yeah. been very, very good to me over the years. I think I added up the amount of winners I'd rode for Colt and his family since I've been riding work there. And I, I counted 83, which is astronomical from a trainer who only has a small stable. So oh, yes, I'm very appreciative. And he's just been solid to me throughout. Your procedure back then was to ride some work at Port Macquarie and then drive about half an hour to Warhope to give Colt a hand. Yeah, so I'd ride work. Um, when I was apprenticed to Mark, that was probably half the reason why I went to Mark's stable because I was able to divvy myself out and ride outside work, which obviously helps when you're coming out of your time. And I'd go ride work at um, Mark Quinn's early or I'd go work for the stables and then at about 7.30 when I finished up there, I'd go out to Colts and ride work. And mm. that continued on as a senior jockey where I'd ride work early in the morning for Neil Godbolt and then I'd head out to Colt, Colt Prosses and um, it always worked well. Um, I worked hard for him but he certainly repaired, returned the favour tenfold. There have been several country-based jockeys for whom you've had admiration, none more than Peter Graham who currently holds a dual licence. He trains and rides his own horses. You rode many a gallop with Pete whose daughter CJ is another recipient of his tutelage. Yeah, certainly. I kind of, um, prior to coming over from Perth, probably didn't know that much about racing, but I remember Peter Graham had ridden a winner for mum early days when she moved over here. So it made me sit up and take notice. So I've always kind of paid attention, but I think more so than the riding, it was more the person he is that, really made me admire Pete. I remember he'd we'd often talk going to the races or at track work and I knew early days that it took him a little while to get started also, but it, he kind of really reiterated the fact that it's kind of not where you start, it's where you finish. And I think everyone can see how well he's done over the years. He wrote 100 winners a season many a times and just made me have, like, gave me the ability to believe in myself watching him and what he done. Mm. He's ridden in excess of 2,300 winners career-wise. Yeah, it's astronomical and he was the same. He actually um, gave me a little bit of self-confidence coming back riding this time after having Gracie because mm. he had a good space of time off with an injury and had a couple of years off um, prior to coming back race riding and he was the same. He just looked like he'd never missed a beat. and looked like he never had a day off. Mm. You've never had the good fortune to ride a really top-flight horse, but you've ridden a handful who've been able to win multiple races. Tornado Blitz is a good case in point. You won six on that horse. It's hard to do. Yeah, definitely. He was um, he was for a trainer called Jim Herriot. He was very good to me early in my career, and just when you're trying to get the ball rolling, you really appreciate them horses. Mm. What about Lotsa Lobbin was a handy mare. You rode her almost exclusively late in her career. You won six races all up, but, gee, you rode her many times. Yeah, definitely. She was a tough old mare. I think she'd done two or three tendons in the time that I 
I had been riding her and she'd always – you think she'd be done, but she'd come back bigger and better. And um, I rode her for a trainer called Robert Barnes at Taree, who was good to me in my time when I was apprentice to Ross Stitt. So another one that you'll appreciate. You've ridden very little in Sydney. You doubt you've had more than 10 rides in town with one second your best effort, and that was on a horse called Knight Templar in a benchmark at Rose Hill about five years ago. Yeah, just um, very limited opportunities down that way. It probably never really bothered me too much because when I did get the opportunity, my my mounts probably weren't up to that standard. So, mm. yeah, obviously you, you look at the people that have made it and been able to go down there and do that admirably and I would have loved if kind of that – that would have happened for me, but it didn't, and I'm pretty satisfied with where I ended up. Mm. Your fiance is Drew Smith, who was formerly a chairman of stewards on the Mid-North Coast and currently a very busy manager of licensed persons. Now, he manages the racing affairs, I believe, of a leading trainer in Matt Dunn. Yeah, he certainly does. He's um, done that since um, stepping back from stewarding. Um, they have a good relationship and, yeah, no, he's, um, I know he enjoys working for Matt Dunn and it helps keep his eye in with the other sides of the business as well. Mm. Matt tried his hand in Sydney for a while. He had a, a team based, I think, at Rose Hill, but I notice he's put all his eggs in one basket again. He's gone back to Mwilumbar. Yeah, and he seems to have had good success. I seen he trained a city winner a couple of um, weeks ago and he got another one yesterday, a midweek winner in Brisbane. So, mm. yeah, no doubt um, it won't be long before you see Matt done in full flight again. Yes, and he's utilised your talents many, many times, hasn't he? Yeah, I have. Um, I think that's mostly thank you to Drew for getting my foot in the door there. But, um, yeah, later mm. on in my career I wrote a lot of winners for Matt Dunn and, yeah, just um, you really appreciate getting on nice horses for a good trainer. Yep. Drew looks after a strong stable of jockeys. He's got Adam Hieronymus, whose career has just been regenerated. He rode a winner at Kembla the other day. He's got Grant Buckley on the books. He's got Aaron Bullock. That's a handy one. He's got the New South Wales title all wrapped up. Uh, ben Looker, I think Ben's ridden more than 100 winners this season. And Ashley Morgan, who was the New South Wales champion jockey last season. So Drew's got a very strong team. No, he does. He, um, it's a credit to him. He's very invested. He's on the phone um, early Sunday morning to 8 o'clock at night. I hear trainers call and, um, no, it's... It means a lot to him to do a good job. He's um, very particular in that way. Uh, I'm very proud of him with what he's done and no doubt um, I can only see him doing better things moving forward. There are very few racetracks in the northern region of New South Wales where you haven't participated. Have you got a favourite? Mm, I was only thinking about this the other day. Obviously, as I mentioned, I love Barable. Um, it's obviously a smaller track, but later in my career, I had a lot of a lot of luck at Mawoolumbar and and them Northern Rivers tracks. So, yeah, anywhere up there with a tight circuit, um, I was generally an on-speed rider, so that really mm. played to my strengths. The numbers of female jockeys all over Australia has burgeoned in the last ten years or so. But I've got the feeling, and you might be able to confirm this, that there are more girls riding in northern New South Wales than anywhere else. 
It's astronomical. I think I went to um, when my number of um, race menus that I went, I rode back at. There was that many young girls, like three or four, around the Tari area, mm. all pre-apprentices doing their trials. So I can only see the numbers increasing again as well. Mm. Do you have any idea why this is the case? I think girls like horses more than blokes, don't they? Yeah, it's funny that um, I know we all grew up around horses and us two girls like the horses and my brother liked the motorbike. It's just um, I think men are getting bigger and bigger, which probably makes it a little bit harder too. Mm. And, um, yeah, yeah. even you look at the pony clubs, there's, there might be 50 girls and there'll be two boys. So I think it's just the way of the world and, mm. um, yeah, unless it's the same thing with the weights, like if I can't see them going up much more, and if they don't, it kind of takes a lot of a lot of men riders out of the equation. Yeah, it certainly does. Now, Belinda, who have been your inspirations among the female riders? Yeah, um, early days. Obviously, you look you look towards your Kathy, your Kathy O'Hara's, and that. I remember she was big when I was I was coming through, and obviously, you look towards your Rachel Kings now. She's doing a great job. It's just, um, yeah, around me, I, I obviously rode with Michaela Weir and Brooke Stoller and they're always my competition. I think that anyone you can look towards that um, is doing better than you is just mm. something to chase and something to go after. So, yeah, I think um, especially those girls that are doing a good job in Sydney, it's, it's excellent. Let's say Dr Cree gives you a complete clearance this time next year. You're going to be wrestling with mixed emotions, aren't you? Yeah, 100%. Um, obviously, the love for it never goes away. And, um, yeah, if I do get that tick off, I've got a lot to think about. But um, mm. at this point in time, I'm just taking it one one day at a time. And, yeah, it's uh, – I, I love the sport. I don't think I ever won't. But then I'm also very aware that my decisions aren't just about me anymore. Mm, good girl. There's little doubt you're a driven person. You can't sit still. You've got to no. be doing something useful and constructive, whatever whatever that is going forward. Yeah, definitely. I think if anything, the last couple of years has kind of shown me that I'm not content to just sit around. I I thrive on a goal to chase after, and if it's not race riding, it'll be something else. And um, no no doubt, I'll make a good goal of it. And what other interests uh, do you have from a recreational viewpoint? Let's assume you're back on your feet, fit and well, away from the racetrack. What do you enjoy? <clears throat> yeah, to be honest, it's um. Something I've been tossing up myself. I'm very uh, aesthetically minded. I'm um, always always looking for something to renovate and in that direction. But then on the other side of things, I I did look at a media avenue. I've looked at um, jockey management. So it's just kind of you know um, po- pointing myself in a direction and figuring mm. out what way I want to go. Mm. Can you cook? <laughs> just, just. <laughs> <laughs> barely, yeah. barely. Yeah, I think Drew's, Drew's pointed me in the right direction the last few years, but I think as a jockey it's um, better if you don't learn to cook real good. That's right. Well, in the meantime, you've got the most important job of all to focus on, and that's the upbringing of Gracie Rose, who has no idea her mum has been a very prominent jockey. 
No, no, I'm very lucky. Um, she's definitely got me under a spell. I think she bit me a couple of days ago and I ended up apologising to her. So <laughs> it's um, <laughs> funny how things go. But, um, yeah. yeah, before you have a child, you have all these aspirations of, yeah, she'll be well behaved and I'll I'll be firm. But um, I'm definitely a softie and, yeah, there's nothing better. Yeah. Has the thought of training ever entered your head? I love horses, um, yeah, and I love that side of things. I think if I won lotto, I'd love to, but it's obviously a hard sport and I've seen it done the hard way. So, um, yeah, if um, money wasn't an option, certainly. Yeah. Do you think you'd be a tough boss to ride horses for? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably need to ride them myself. Belinda, great to chat. I'm so pleased you're well on your way to recovery and I wish you the very best with whatever decision you make going forward. I'm sure it'll be the right one. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. I um, I remember sitting up on a Sunday morning watching your program as a kid, so to have the opportunity to sit here and speak to you today is um, something I'll always appreciate. Well, Belinda, I'm relieved to think that you watch the programs yourself uh, most people tell me that they can remember their grandmother watching it. <laughs> well, I'm sure my age. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for your time. Great to chat on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Australian trainers are giving Pride's Racing Cube the thumbs up. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube is a set recipe formulation in which the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Mornington trainer Jason Warren introduced his horses to Racing Cube early this year and is delighted with the results. We've had a great deal of success since making that change. So really pleased with Pride's and not only the racing cubes, they've got a number of other feeds that work well for us. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at a very economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed stable. Trainers are giving it the tick of approval all around the nation.